Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of interviewing April Rennie, who is the author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. Uh, April has dedicated the majority of her career in helping individuals and organizations navigate change. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode as we talk about her book and some of the lessons that she's learned uh, from navigating change, as well as helping others and organizations navigate change. I think you'll find that these eight superpowers are really relevant to helping you think about how you can navigate change, particularly in the professional and career sense. Um, I found her book to be very helpful and resonate strongly with where I am in my own career journey right now. And I love the conversation that we had about how to actually thrive and build and grow and manage your career uh, when it does feel like there's a lot of change that's going on. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. April, thank you so much for being here. So I want to jump right in and just start off with a warm-up question. And you are an author, but as an of all the authors that I talk to, many of them I know are vociferous readers. And I would just love to know from you, who is an author or what is a book that has had a meaningful impact on your life? Yeah. So first, a delight to join you today, Al, and to dive into some of this stuff. It's a great question. I thought about it a bit, and I'm actually thinking about who might be tuning in. One of my favorite, and taking a slightly, not alternative lens, but hopefully sharing something that people haven't heard of before. One of my favorite authors and inspirations is a woman by the name of Pema Chodron, C-H-O-D-R-O-N. And she is a prolific writer. Some of her books include Start Where You Are, when Things Fall Apart, The Wisdom of No Escape, No Time to Lose, Practicing Peace in Times of War. She is a, she's an American. She's a Buddhist nun. She's a philosopher. But a lot of her books on philosophy have great resonance and meaning for business. And obviously for navigating change and uncertainty and all the stuff we'll talk about today. And so I thought, I pulled up one quote, which I think really sums up the kind of writing that Pema Chodron embodies. And here it is. We think that the point is to pass the test or overcome the problem. But the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and fall apart again. That's the point. And so I offer that as a jumping off point for today's conversation. <laughs> I love that. And thank you for thinking and pulling in something that maybe people wouldn't mm -hmm. be thinking about. I think that's such a great way to think and to create ideas. And speaking of ideas, one idea I know we're going to talk about today is this idea and theme around change. It just seems like it's been a constant theme, not only in your life, but also certainly in what you've written about and what you've researched about. And I think one thing that specifically really stands out to me about you is that Sometimes when people get change or see change, they have a desire to run away from it. But you seem to just lean into the darn thing. Were you born this way or how did you have this aptitude or this ability to change? How did that come about? Oh, gosh. So 
my journey to flux, as I like to call it. How did I end up carrying so much of a change, writing a book called Flux, joining you in this conversation today? I think we need to be really careful what we mean when we say the word change. It's one word. We treat it like one thing, but in reality, it's really messy and complicated and far more than one thing. And what I'm getting at here is, I'm doing a little foreshadowing, we humans on the whole, and I realize I'm generalizing, but trust me, I've been at this for nearly 30 years now professionally, so I have a track record. (laughs) Most humans and most organizations love change we can opt into, change we can pick, a new job, a new relationship, a new course, a new restaurant, a new haircut, like, right? We love that kind of change. Most people do. It's good for us. We really struggle with change we can't control. The kind of change that blindsides you on a random afternoon, it goes against your expectations, it tosses your world upside down, right? We've seen a lot of that over the last couple of years. And I think one way we want to frame this or tee things up is that we treat change like it's all one thing, like it's one word, right? And it is one word, but the reality is change is really messy and complicated and means many different things to many different people. And think about it this way. Most humans, and again, I'm generalizing a little bit here, but I've been working on this for nearly three decades professionally, so I have some perspective and some track record. The vast majority of humans and organizations tend to love change. So think about a new job or a new relationship or a new trip to take or a new haircut. (laughs) We love those kinds of changes. They're good for us. They're how we grow. Most humans and most organizations really struggle with changes we can't control. So the kind of change that blindsides you, it goes against your expectations, your assumptions, your plans. We've all had a lot of that in the last couple of years. That's the kind of change we're talking about when it comes to flux. That's the kind of change that there's more of ahead. And humans are really, really ill-equipped to deal with it. Now, we can adapt to it. But we usually do that, as the last two years have shown us, we usually do that when we're forced to, and it's not that fun. We adapt when our back is against the wall and we have to adapt or we die or, you know, we don't survive in some way. So I just want to tease this out because even for people tuning in, I love asking people, write down some changes you've loved in your life, any kind of change. Write down the changes you've really struggled with any kind, right? Personal, professional, organizational, societal. And then look at what those changes have in common. And the vast majority of people, like, because I talk to people almost every day saying, I'm a change junkie. I love change. And I'm like, you like certain kinds of change. You like the ones you choose. But coming back to this, so your question of how did I get so interested in this? I think I've always, like many humans, enjoyed changes I could opt into. And I've Travel, like travel for me was just a huge source of change and everything new and experience and adventure. And But I began getting increasingly concerned about humans' difficulty, lack of ability to embrace the change we can't control, that we don't see coming, that we don't want to have happen. And so I bring really three main lenses to that. So like my journey to Flux would have three main pieces, I would say. The first and most recent is that of a futurist. 
Today, I'm known as a futurist. That means I help organizations better understand where is the future heading? How do they fit into it? In that capacity, I've been exposed to just a wide range of companies, startups, governments, financial institutions, nonprofits, like lots of different companies, lots of different cultures, lots of different business models. And what I've seen is that every single organization struggles with change in some way. And, you know, not always in the same way, but there's just a ton of room for improvement. So I got interested in it from that perspective and just, you know, with a real clear concern about are we going to get the future writ large, <laughs> right? Are we going to embrace change that's hard? And I firmly believe that our relationship to change and our tolerance or intolerance for uncertainty and ambiguity will define the 21st century. And so felt important in that regard. The second lens that I bring, though, is a global lens on change, a global perspective. So my whole career has been international. My whole life has been international in some regard. But I've traveled to more than 100 countries. I've worked in more than 50. And I've worked in the global north and the global south. And last but not least, my journey to Flux began when I look back and go, when did I really get interested in it? It was more than 25 years ago. I will date myself here. But my baptism or my entry into a world in flux happened when I was in college. And both of my parents died in a car accident when I was 20 years old. And I say that it became part of my human story. It became part of my lived experience. In an instant, my whole life changed. Like everything flipped upside down whether it was my family, my career, how do I take care of myself, my grief and anxiety. Basically, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And so I was thrown into the deep end, very much against my will. I did not want this to happen, but it did. And then what? And so when I look back and I say, that was when the seed was planted. Now, I'd never imagined back then that I would write a book about it, that we'd be talking about it. But I also wouldn't have imagined that the world in 2022 would exist as it is where so many people feel like they've lost their bearings, their sense of the future, a sense of what they really want, what matters. And so I bring this up because even though I know we can talk about business and organizational culture and performance and all of that, this is a fundamentally human topic that we need to be able to talk about our emotions and anxieties and all of that sort of stuff that doesn't usually show up in MBA curriculum. And yet it drives everything that we do. So that's where my story begins. We can go in any of those directions, you know, human, futurist, global, you name it. Thank you for sharing all that. There's so much to unpack there. I think maybe a good place to start is where you finished off. There can be a lot of, or there are a lot of people right now who are trying to make sense of their bearings in a world where there just constantly seems that constantly seems to be in flux. And on this notion, as we were briefly talking about before we jumped on, I was recently talking with a number of leaders in the MBA education space who were telling me that they were just hoping they could get back to a quote unquote normal year. And the that has been the prevailing thought for the past couple of years. And so we started talking more about, well, what if this normal is just, or this normal we have now is the feature, like not the bug, right? What if there isn't a way to get back to where they are? And I think that is a fitting way to frame up this idea of flux. And so maybe what you can do is just talk to us a little bit more about 
what is what does flux mean or how you define it and maybe even just walk through i think flux mindset flux deficit and flux baseline because i think that would be a great way to frame up this conversation yeah we just wanted to go back quote to normal and i'm like this is normal <laughs> like this is where we are this is just like another way that people will frame it is like the future like there's one future i'm like no there are many different possible futures that we're all contributing to every day there is no one sense of normal normal is flux And what's fascinating to me is the degree to which we have been pursuing a kind of illusion for much of modern human history, this illusion that the world is predictable and controllable and that if you do X, Y will happen. And if something goes off course, well, then of course it will come back to where it was. It's like, no, it's never really been that way. We've just been deluding ourselves But here's the thing. There's a huge opportunity in actually doing a level set and a reframing and a regrounding in the world as it actually is. Change is messy and complicated. My solution, so to speak, to this, or at least how to bring calm and clarity to at least some of this messiness, is what I call a flux mindset, which is the state of mind that sees all change. So, you know, good, quote unquote, or bad, quote unquote, expected or unexpected. And especially the hard stuff, the stuff we didn't see coming, the stuff we just wish would go away. It's the ability to see all of it as an opportunity to learn and to grow and to improve. And I think of it as an attitude of abundance and optimism, not naive optimism, but optimism that's grounded in the wisdom of what is and is not, what we can and cannot control, and what really matters. So whether that's in your career, your relationships, your organizational culture, or your longer-term life goals. So that's flux mindset. We can talk more about that if you want. The flux deficit and flux baseline, these are more like assessments and tools that I will often use for people who are new to this concept of what is your relationship to change? Do you see change from a place of hope or fear? What are the kinds of changes you love? What are the kinds of changes you hate or struggle with? The things we were just talking about earlier. And so your flux baseline is basically a diagnostic or an assessment that gives you a sense of, okay, today, on the day when hopefully this will be the first day of the rest of your life in which you can work on improving your relationship to change, what does your baseline look like? What is your snapshot? So again, looking at what kinds of changes delight you? What kinds of changes unravel you? What patterns do you see? All of that. And so to be clear, everyone's baseline looks different because we all have unique life experiences, right? The very same change could be really easy for you and really hard for me. The very same change could feel really fast for you and feel really slow for me, right? So you kind of need to go through this process of peeling back the layers of your own onion about change. And that is your baseline. And then the point is you kind of work on improving it, strengthening it, getting better at relating to many different kinds of change. And your flux deficit, I don't like the term deficit so much. It speaks to like a lack or a wanting of something. But I would say on the whole, your flux deficit is the delta, the difference, the gap between 
where your relationship is, where your relationship to change is today and the things you struggle with in particular and where you would like it to be. And this immediately bleeds into the eight flux superpowers, another piece of my framework, which we can talk about. But usually your flux deficit will focus on a couple of those superpowers, not the whole thing. Where are you struggling most? What are the lowest hanging fruits, so to speak, in terms of the kinds of behaviors, practices, skills, disciplines you need to develop to better navigate, better embrace certain kinds of change? What I took away from that was we talk about things like your flux baseline or your flux deficit or any of that is part of the exercise here is getting better in tune or being better attuned to your own relationship with flux or with or change for that matter and really getting to the nitty gritty of it. As you mentioned, some things that you might opt into or be comfortable with changing might be different than someone else. And I think maybe a good way to help people frame this up is to go through a couple of those eight flux superpowers. And in particular, the two that jumped out to me that I think really would be helpful to some of the listeners here were one was know you're enough. And then the second one was the portfolio career. So could you talk to two of those superpowers and how you came up with them, what they mean and and some of the implications for them? Sure. And I think if you don't mind, it might be helpful for me to do a quick recap, like a one sentence sure. recap of all eight so that people yep. are like, what is, what is this all about? Like, how do these dots connect? So this whole notion are relationships to change. And one of the things, particularly as a futurist, that was really bugging me was that I spent so much time working with teams on change management. How do we develop change management strategies? Change management is a super useful tool. Use it all the time. It is woefully incomplete and insufficient for today's world. The fact that we treat it as change management assumes that humans have the ability to predict and control exactly what's going to happen. Nothing could be further from the truth. And yet, what we're not bringing into the conversation is, how do you relate to change? Are you coming from a place of hope or fear? As just one framing question, but that's a really good one. Because think about it. Whether you're seeing a particular change from a place of hope or fear is going to shape and filter and determine whatever strategy you set, whatever investment you make, whatever decision you take. And yet we don't talk about those human emotions, baggage, if you will, right? And so what I'm trying to do is flip the lens, the flip the end of the telescope, the end of the lens that we're looking through, because when we focus on strategies and decisions and investments, first and foremost, we put the cart before the horse. So just to kind of put a more, little bit more color and context on that, this human relationship to change drives everything else. So you've got your flux mindset, or at least you're trying to open a flux mindset, which means basically you acknowledge that your relationship to change can use some help. Okay, then what, right? The second step, I like to say, and as the book explains, is to use your flux mindset to unlock and develop your eight flux superpowers. Now, these superpowers, you can think of them as practices. You can think of them as disciplines. You can think of them as like how to thrive in constant change. Each one is a chapter in the book. It's a menu, not a syllabus. So you don't have to do one before two or two before three. And I think the two you indicated are probably going to pique the interest of quite a few people who are listening in. And again, I'm rubbing against the grain. There's a certain there's a certain kind of contrarianness to flux because just as we were talking about earlier, 
a lot of people have been taught to believe that humans can predict and control and engineer the world and the future. And I'm here to say that a world in flux is none of that. <laughs> so again, we can, we can dive into this. The fact is that all of these superpowers are far more fit to succeed in a world and a future in flux, a world in which there's more uncertainty, more instability, more change. So with that backdrop, the first flux superpower is run slower. This is all about anxiety and burnout and making wiser decisions. The second superpower is see what's invisible. This is about identifying our blind spots, but also discovering new opportunities, new insights, new sources of value. The third superpower is get lost. This is all about stretching beyond our comfort zones and our relationship to the unknown. The fourth is start with trust. This is all about how do we nurture relationships to better navigate change together. The fifth, which you called out, is know you're enough. This is all about our obsession with more, 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 but really our quest for true happiness. The sixth one, also what you called out, create your portfolio career. This is about how do you design and own a career that is fit for a future of work in flux. Even the meaning of the word career is changing, and this superpower addresses that. The seventh one is be all the more human. This gets at our relationship to technology and the tension we face in that we're spending ever more time with our devices, yet ever less time with one another. And last but not least, the eighth flux superpower is let go of the future. I like to just say that this is all about our relationship to control, which is something that's really hard for everyone today. So I'll leave it at that. So back to Know You're Enough and Portfolio Career. So I'll start with Know You're Enough. So think about what we're typically taught. I think myself, many people, I don't want to generalize for everybody, but like in general, <laughs> a lot of people were brought up to believe that more is better. Like just by default, more is better. Yet today we have become obsessed with more. And I don't just mean more money or more power more likes, more clicks, more clothes, like more everything. And guess what? It's making us mostly miserable. Many people now feel that they will never have, earn, find, do, or perhaps most disturbing, be enough, right? And I'm especially concerned about how many young people feel this way. By the age of 15, 16, 20, it's like we have drunk the Kool-Aid that you will never be enough. And I started digging into this because it's really quite toxic. And both economics and psychology are at play here. So, in, and often I would say in ways that we take for granted. So, for example, we live in a consumer-driven, I would say a hyper-consumer-driven world today. In a consumer-driven world, we are conditioned to believe that we can never have enough, that we'll never look good enough, and that we'll only be enough if we buy this product or that service. Now, this is a key driver of consumerism, to buy more stuff. But I always like to ask people, did you know that the original meaning of the word to consume is to destroy? So for most of human history, consumption wasn't something that you were encouraged to do. It was actually something that could kill you. Now, 
I'm not going to rant about consumerism. We could certainly have a rant about consumerism and about certain aspects of capitalism today. But I want for people to start thinking about, are you, do you assume that more is better? Have you ever thought about what it looks like to shift from a perspective of more to enough? And enough is not too much and not too little. Enough is a point of balance and harmony and self-sufficiency. Enough is a lot easier to achieve than always after ever more. And in my experience, a lot of people are struggling with having effectively having too much stuff. We have too much stuff in our lives, which is also burning up the planet, super expensive, all of that. We're over-indexed on stuff and we're under-indexed on humanity. We have too little love in our lives. We have too little dignity, too little tolerance, too little time. And so one of the exercises I love doing with people is like taking them through this assessment, a diagnostic again, if you will, around your enoughness, right? Here's the hook. When we are always after ever more, anyone listening, think about this. If you're always after ever more, by design, you will never, and I say this in the sort of absolute categorical way, you will never find enough. It can't happen because what happens when you get more? You need more and more and more. And it becomes this kind of vicious cycle that never ends. But as I like to say, when you know you're enough, and that includes knowing that you are enough, so it's both Y-O-U-R and Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. When you know you're enough, you will immediately begin to see abundance. It selfishly resonated with me because it's something that I've thought a lot about. I think actually ties in very nicely also with portfolio career. But what I often find myself in having worked in the MBA space now for a while is that many people view get, getting an advanced degree like an MBA as a great milestone and achievement, which it is, in addition to obviously furthering opportunities for growth development, compensation, et cetera. But one of the things that I often hear from people, particularly those who graduate and do get into a better career or into a better life situation because of a degree is, well, now what? And a little bit of what you said of, I went and did this thing. I thought I was going to be really happy and it was something that I wanted, but now what and what's next? And just, and that leads to another thing and another thing and another thing. And to your point, when you don't necessarily have intentional thought about what enough is, I do think it, it tends to lead to that hedonic treadmill, right? And just that desire to continuously strive for more. And more can be good if you know what it's going towards. But that only happens, I think, when you have your enough. Yes. And what I love is I'm not saying don't strive. I'm not saying do nothing. I'm saying, wait a minute. Since when? And it, again, it's this relationship with happiness. I will be happy. I will be successful when? I will be fulfilled when. And this when implies that it hasn't happened yet. And it's only going to happen if you have more of something, more degrees, more money, more whatever. But it implies it doesn't exist. And I am here to say that, hold on a minute. You can be happy and successful and fulfilled right now, this very instant, if you actually see it. And yeah. by the way, you've always been enough. You can yeah. be happy right now. And that whole notion of when, it's at some future point. And I'll bring this up too. I think this is where I might be a little bit different than some folks that 
losing my parents at the age that I did when I was in college, before I had made a decision about grad school or career or anything like that, losing them at age 20 made it really clear to me that any of us could die today, tomorrow. No one knows. And are you going to wait for some future date to be happy? Or are you going to do so right now because you don't know how long you have? And even from a professional perspective, and this might be a good segue into the portfolio stuff, I started asking myself at the age of 20, which I realized most people didn't at the time, if I were to die tomorrow, I don't want to, I don't plan to, but it could happen. If I were to die tomorrow, what would the world, not my ego, not social media, but the world need me to do today? And if I could answer that question and spend my time doing things that towards that end, that not only would I actually be okay with my death whenever it happens, but that in fact I could find happiness and contentedness and peace right now. And it was fascinating because I set that as my kind of metric, my baseline, which was not how much money can I make, what title can I have, how fast can I advance in any given career. It was completely different, and I got a lot of backlash for it at the time. And yet now I look at it and I'm like, what's interesting is many of my friends who were kind of gunning for these big positions and so forth, much later in their life, they're having their own kind of crisis around purpose and meaning and what they're supposed to do and realizing that they might die tomorrow too. And I say this because I know some of the listeners and some of your audience, the younger you can start thinking this way, I'm finding the healthier it can be for your overall life, including your sense of enoughness. That resonates with me and honestly is one of the reasons why, A, I wanted you to come on the podcast, but B, also in particular, I zoomed in on the, on the superpower because for me, selfishly, that is something that I came to the conclusion of for myself mm-hmm. and really honing in on well, just even the question in and of itself. And it really made me think about what was important to me and the ways in which I wanted to go about spending that time really working towards whatever was important to me. Mm-hmm. And maybe, a, I think maybe a younger age than I, I think m- many other people would have. Mm-hmm. But what it did also, and maybe this is a good segue with for career portfolio, is that we, it, it also made me think about if I know what's important to me, what are the ways in which I can go about finding those opportunities in my life? And certainly my career was one of those ways where I could do it. But career portfolio actually is what I'd love to have you talk about now is that concept actually gave me a lot more strategic thought about how to actually go and make that happen. So why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about career portfolio and and tell us what it means and the implications of it? Yeah, it's great. Super, super. I define the superpower in just big picture again is how do you design and own a career that's fit for a future of work and flux? And what we're talking about a lot is here, a lot here is the shape of your career. So I think a lot of people are, and again, this is not unique to the last two years, but the last two years have like lit it on fire (laughs) with the great resignation and all the rest. The career models of the past aren't really fit for today or the future of work. So I think many of us, and again, myself included, the career path that we were taught or, you know, kind of instructed that this is how our professional life should play out went something like study hard, get good grades, go to college if you can, ideally, get good grades there too, go to grad school, get an MBA if you can, 
get a good job, do said job for a long time and retire. Promotions, climb the ladder, right? But it was a straight line. It was linear. You had a career path that you were going to pursue or a ladder that you were going to climb. And I'm not saying that the ladder is bad. Or it's Today, it is just one of many, many, many different ways you can shape your career. The ladder is also tilting, listing, breaking, whatever. A lot of people are realizing they don't want to be on the ladder. A lot of people are realizing, gosh, climbing to the ladder on, at the top of the ladder, people seem kind of miserable. They might make a lot of money, but they're actually quite unfulfilled. Technology is disrupting the ladder. Automation is disrupting the ladder. Right? Like the shape of the career model that many people have been taught, it's just no longer fit. And so you might've heard, there's a great talk out there about like squiggly careers. So your career isn't linear, it's squiggly. You might've heard about your career being a jungle gym rather than a ladder, something you can climb around or a lattice that you can climb up and down and sideways and so forth. And so I love that because there are lots of different ways we can think about the career of the future. But what's the structure? How do you build it? If, you know, a squiggly career, super interesting, super on point, I think. But a squiggly career is also messy. Like, give it some shape. How do I think about this? And so I firmly believe that we are in the early stages of an emerging era of what I call portfolio careers. And you can think about this as both portfolio careers as well as career portfolios or being a career portfolioist. The terms are kind of interchangeable and I find different people like using either one. Not only are portfolio careers fit for a future of work in flux, they actually have an enormous amount of benefit for you individually, but also for organizations. So when I say portfolio career, think about your career portfolio as something you curate just like an artist would or an investor would. So what's in an artist's portfolio? Their best work, the canvas of their life, so to speak. Why do investors have portfolios? They have investment portfolios in order to diversify risk and maximize returns. Executives use what's called portfolio theory, founded by BCG back in the 1970s, which most business school students learn at some point. Executives use portfolio theory to craft strategies that balance the future with the present. I mention all of this because like there's a lot to like about portfolios and it's not like one way of seeing it. Pick which example you like best for you, but your portfolio is your unique combination of everything you can do. So it includes your roles and your jobs, as well as your side hustles, your skills, your passions. Everything that's on your resume, and importantly, a whole bunch of things that aren't on your resume, but that make you uniquely you. And that's one of the things that's really frustrated me about the ladder and the path. And even LinkedIn is a great tool. I use it all the time. LinkedIn is your resume. Your resume only represents or reflects a fraction of who you are and what you can do. And in my experience, it often doesn't even reflect the most interesting parts. For example, a traditional resume or CV wouldn't include parenting skills or resume gaps in which great growth happened, right? Now, I think that's just tragic. Parenting skills are some of the best skills for teamwork, conflict resolution, right? And yet we don't even allow those things to show up in our careers. 
So your portfolio is a more expansive view of what are you capable of? What do you want your career to include, evolve into, allow for, et cetera? And then you're responsible for putting what goes in your portfolio and curating it, again, like an artist or investor would, but it's actually a shape that allows for much more flexibility, much more customization, and much more opportunity for growth on your terms. And just a couple more, couple other footnotes I like to add here. I always love to remind people, particularly today where we've had the great resignation and now possibly a recession and all these different unknowns, we don't know what's going to happen with our jobs. Your portfolio is yours forever. Unlike a job, I hate to bring this up, but even if you love your job, even if you are really good at your job, if it's a job that someone else gave you, that job can be taken away from you, whether you like it or not, even with the best intentioned people. Unlike a job, your portfolio can never be taken away. So for all the things that you can't control in today's world, ownership of your portfolio is one that you can. And second point, you already have a portfolio, even if you don't realize it. So like you're already a step ahead than you thought you were, and there's never been a better time to curate it than now. So let me pause there and see what else that sparks. It sparks a lot. And like I said, I brought this up because it selfishly, it, I think it resonated with me. And first off is the concept of a portfolio career. One of the things that I really do like about it is that it helps people understand and think more expansively about the areas where they can find ways to pursue their enough. And what, what for me, where that came to light was just, quite frankly, in terms of as some of the listeners will know, I made the full-time leap to entrepreneurship in 2021. And after leaving the corporate world after about 12 years, and while that happened in one year, it was about seven or eight years in the making. And it happened because in my portfolio, I had a whole bunch of other things that I was doing that were really interesting to me, coaching and training and podcasting and blogging and writing. And while at that time in my portfolio, the main thing that I was doing was being employed full time and doing a really good job of that, I got to a point in my life as I thought more about my enough that I wanted to do more of those things that were in the portfolio, maybe adjacent as opposed to being the main investment, if you will. And so for me, those two concepts came to life in terms of making the change and transition to entrepreneurship, because now I get to do more of those things that were maybe the adjacent investments as my main investment, but it also allowed me to find other avenues, other investments to make of my time and my interest to help me achieve the enough that I wanted. And so that, that to me is how, for me, selfishly, how that has come to life. But it also is something that I encourage other people to really think about. Because to your point, even if you are someone who very much is in a mode of climbing the career ladder, particularly if you are in an industry or function where that is a great vehicle for advancement, a, you still have to know you're enough or else I think you'll probably find some challenges down the road of either managing exhaustion, burnout, et cetera. But it also can help you think expansively about, all right, well, if you are in your career, if you are trying to climb the ladder, what are the other investments that you're making in your career outside of that, that either help you get up that ladder or give you something else that's important to your enough in your life? So well said, Al. And I just want to add something as you're talking, I'm thinking, gosh, and what I love is that you do see each of the eight flux superpowers stands on its own. 
It can be practiced on its own, but you're showing this beautiful example of how they do enhance one another. So when you get good at one or start to really understand one, it affects how you see the others. Because you also just harked in, you echoed or channeled, run slower. You started to channel a little bit of see what's invisible. Because when you start understanding, well, like, what am I actually after here? And I know this is, this can really rub some people the wrong way and I get it. But what I'm trying to help people do is really get clear on their self-awareness when it comes to change, but when it comes to what really matters. And so if you think about in your career or how you spend your time, are you spending, and how do I actually want to, I haven't expressed it exactly like this before, so I'm going to try. You're spending ever more, more, more time pursuing quests or metrics or KPIs or whatever that other people are setting versus are you investing enough in yourself. Fascinating is when we're chasing always after ever more, especially when it's a more that someone else has defined for us, and that could be a boss, but it could also just be society. We believe that we need X number of followers or we need to look a certain way or have a certain persona, right? That's exhausting. It's expensive. And it's not actually you. And what I love to tell people is no one will ever be a better you than you, and you will always be second rate if you're trying to be someone else. And so that said, this notion of do you have enough of you or are you always after ever more with others, getting to your own enoughness is actually far closer within reach than most people think. It's actually already there today if you just let yourself be. It's also less expensive. It also frees up time that you didn't realize you had available. It has all of these different ripple effects. And Al, you've done such a a beautiful job just explaining how some of that has played out for you. Thank you. (laughs) I'm like, I want to interview you someday. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. Yeah, no. And I, part of the reason why I bring it up and again, so when I started this podcast and when I started MBA school, my blog, it really was focused on people who were curious about how an MBA education could grow their career or people who were in school. But over time, what I found were that people were coming to me or were coming inbound into the site who were, a lot of them were MBA graduates who had been a couple of years out or whatnot. And they had kind of achieved a lot, right? They had gone to top school, gotten into the role or the function that they wanted. And they were having questions about what do I do now? What do I do next? Some of them had been climbing and had been done very well and wanted to know, is there all that there is for this? Whereas others had made a career change into something that they realized, you know what, I did this for a couple of years, but I don't necessarily know if I want to keep doing it. And I think for me, what it taught me and what it made me think a lot about is that the majority of people who go get an MBA education are between the ages of 26 to 34. For many of them, 99.5% of them, the first job out of business school will not be their last one. Their first career out of business school will not be their last one. And so to me, what why these superpowers are helpful and why I brought you on to talk about today is because if you learn how to embed these mindsets and practices when you're in school, that's going to be the thing that fuels more opportunities for you as you go throughout your life and career to live a life and career that is impactful and meaningful to you. I also see it too from the work that I do in terms of looking out at the workplace and thinking about what is the mindset that people need to thrive when there is constant change or when you know you will have potential roles or opportunities 
that you don't know about and that maybe not and maybe don't even exist. And a lot of those superpowers and putting them together really illustrates how I think people can take advantage of that in in today's kind of changing world. Totally. And if I'll just put a couple final yeah. footnotes on this. To be clear, having an MBA, and I say this also about having a law degree, two of the most powerful, malleable degrees out there. Having an MBA will serve you well throughout life. The question becomes, are you using it in the way that speaks to what matters most to you? And your portfolio, you you can use an MBA and climb a ladder and there you go. And I'm not going to fault anybody who does that. A ladder is legit. A ladder is just one of increasingly many, many options you have to create a meaningful career that has impact in the ways that, again, matter to you. So the question becomes, and it's funny because I have a law degree. I've had a law degree for 20 years almost, which is crazy. I practiced for a couple of years. I'm now invited back to teach at law school what to do, how to be creative with a legal degree kind of thing. But most of my friends cannot believe that I ever was a lawyer because even in my book, a lot of what I talk about is antithetical to like partner track, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, right, because as far as I can tell, most of my friends who are lawyers who went partner track are not happy at all, even though they thought it was the path to success and happiness and all the rest. Persons. But again, the training serves me well every day. But how do you go beyond, again, getting lost, how do you go beyond your comfort zone to explore those topics, those disciplines, those jobs, creating your own venture like you've done, Al? I mean, all of that, an MBA is essential. It's so helpful for that, but it requires breaking some molds around what we've been taught. So I love that. And again, though, this notion of finding your enough is so much easier when it's in enough that you're defining as opposed to going after ever more that other people have defined because they think it's something you should do as opposed to listening to your own inner wisdom, inner voice. And that's the other piece that I want to just double down on. We, again, individually and collectively as humans, we are sitting on so much innate human wisdom I think many people know exactly what to do, but they just don't have, their inner voice has been buried for a very long time. They don't feel that it's their right or that they have agency to go try new things. The fact is we do. And so much of how you create your career, explore different opportunities, combine and curate your portfolio, it's actually a lot easier than a lot of people think. We just haven't spent time reflecting on what matters to us. And so I love that a lot of what I'm talking about, and I mean, none of the eight flux superpowers, none of them costs any money. None of them requires any technology we may or may not have. It actually requires a lot of doing the hard work of the inner work, the self-work, but boosting your self-awareness, which will help you not just cultivate and create a more interesting, meaningful career, but I think of these a lot as life skills, they will serve you every day for the rest of your life. Absolutely. April, thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to follow you or learn more about your work, where can they go and where can they find you? Sure. So for all things flux, change, uncertainty, all that, head to fluxmindset.com. That's kind of where I send most people. If you want, 
I will mention this just because it's fun. People have discovered that I do handstands. I do also have a personal site, aprilrinney.com, where you can find my handstands and more about travels and things not related necessarily to the book. And then on social media, I am April Rinney on all handles. So April like the month, R-I-N-N-E. As far as I can tell, no one else has my name. So it, that, that has served me well. <laughs> Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.